Hello, my name's David Runtzman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going back to the United States. We're joined by Gary Gerstel, who is there, Helen Thompson, and myself are going to talk about Biden one year on, but also, are we really approaching another civil war? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12, and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking bag. Gary, we haven't caught up with you for a while. And also, we haven't actually talked about American politics for a while. But we have talked about American politics a lot with you over the past few years. And we talked quite a lot during and after Biden's inauguration about his prospects. This podcast is going out exactly a year to the day after that inauguration. So we're one year in. One of the things that you said that always stayed with me was that some Democratic presidents who are essentially in the center of American politics get pulled left by their party when in office. And FDR is the classic example of that. And that there was a serious possibility that this would be I'm not going to say Biden's fate, but also his opportunity. And some of that seems to have come to pass. Joe Biden has, in some sense, been pulled left, but it's not going very well. I mean, if if that was a template for getting things done, certainly recently, it feels like a template for not getting things done. Is that because this is actually a very different pattern or model? Or do you even want to say that it is still going the way you thought it might? The model is is working, at least in its initial stages Biden definitely moved left. Uh, there is a left in the Democratic Party of a sort that has not existed at least since the 1960s and perhaps since the 1930s and 40s. Uh, they have had a lot of influence in the party. And Biden made a decision when he thought he needed to become a transformational president, a la FDR, to bring the left into his administration to think big, to think boldly. It was always going to be a difficult road for him. We have to keep in mind the very radically different circumstances under which he's operating from what Roosevelt operated under in the 1930s. Roosevelt had huge majorities in the House and the Senate during that time, and he commanded those majorities. Biden basically has no majority. It's tied 50-50, and we know Senator Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Sinema from Arizona have been holdouts and have frustrated his ambitions. And a lot of criticism has been heaped upon them. But structurally, we have to understand the situation, which is that if you want to become a transformational president, it's hard to become a transformational president when your margin is so slim and when you can't afford to tell a single senator to go to hell, even when you need to do that. I think his transformational project has gotten stalled somewhat. I should add that in the U.S. right now, all the news about Biden is is bad from the right, which is to be expected also from the center and the left, the media. He had a bad week last week when he pivoted 
from focusing on infrastructure and saving his social infrastructure bill to focusing on voting rights. And he also suffered a big defeat in the Supreme Court. He wanted to issue a decree requiring all big employers to uh, issue a mandate that all of their employees must be vaccinated. And so the press since that time has been very bad. I want to cut a little bit against that grain just because I think so much criticism has been heaped upon him. It's worth pausing for a moment to just register what he has accomplished in this year before I think we get to the justifiable criticism that he is not exercising a kind of personal power that is required of successful presidents. But it's important to remember a few things. Unemployment is down to less than 4%. The growth rate GDP this past year is estimated to come in at between 5 and 6%, levels not achieved in a very long time. The recovery from the pandemic recession was much quicker than anticipated and much quicker than the recovery from the 2008-2009 Great Recession. Poverty has fallen back to pre-pandemic levels. By putting much more money in the hands of ordinary Americans, Biden has increased their leverage in their negotiations with employers. So there's a broad renegotiation of wages and conditions of work. This is happening. There is a very interesting experiment going on with repurposing and reimagining the role of the Fed, America's central bank, in American politics. A lot, in fact, has been accomplished over this first year. But Biden is getting no credit for it, is able to claim little credit for it. And the failures stand out, starting with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the failure to pass his big Build Back Better social infrastructure bill, which was going to contain, among other things, a giant commitment to a Green New Deal and addressing the climate crisis. And he has had difficulty managing the relations between the center and the left of the Democratic Party. So I don't want to deny his limitations and his failures, but it's also the case that he has accomplished quite significant achievements. And if circumstances change sometime over the next six months, there may yet be an opportunity for him and the Democrats to recover, although they do have to climb out of a steep hole. Alan, when I listened to that summary that Gary gave of the achievements and also the frustrations, to put it mildly, Gary, as you said, he wanted to be a transformational president, but the conditions don't suit transformational politics at the moment. And the achievements that you listed there were not transformational achievements. They were solid accomplishments, some of them simply to do with restoring things back to a state before the pandemic hit, just registering incremental improvements in areas that people may not pick up on for a while. So it sounds like the flaw in the project is trying to be a transformational president under conditions, as Gary said, that don't allow for it. I mean, it's just a basic strategic mistake. Two different ways of thinking about this. One is the one that Gary's already laid out, which is that it is pretty odd to think you can be a transformational president after the kind of election that the 2020 elections were, both in terms of the presidency and in terms of the congressional elections. The political condition, I think, that the Democrats, or Biden, I should say, but other Democrats obviously as well, mean that there was the possibility of transformational politics, despite the situation in the Senate in particular, was what happened on the on the 6th of January and what seemed then like the, the complete discrediting of the Trump project. And so it was that, I think, that was the political context in which Biden 
move from being one kind of possible president to being another kind of president. But I think that the other context isn't really about the state of affairs in the in the Senate, it's the nature of the pandemic and the role that the pandemic played in bringing Trump's presidency to electoral defeat, which as we know was considerable. And part of the narrative around Biden was that he was going to get the US out of it, that there was a way of doing this better and that the management of the pandemic had been you know, catastrophic. The bad outcomes, um, could, a significant part of them could be laid at um, the Trump administration's door. And I think that that's what's proved to be just not the case. I don't mean that in in saying that there's not lots of criticism that should be directed at Trump's handling of the pandemic. What I'm saying is, is to be transformational president about a pandemic, which is going across the world and and where the virus has behaved in various unpredictable turns. I just don't think you, you could be a transformational president. Leaving aside the legislative state of affairs, leaving aside Joe Biden's character, this isn't an economic depression as in March 1933. There's not something that you can do like um, take the United States off the gold standard, um, basically do all the dramatic things, emergency banking legislation, etc. that Roosevelt did to bring about change quickly. That's just not possible. It wasn't possible in this instance. It couldn't have been possible from the start. And I, I think that there was an overreading of the role that Trump's incompetence played in the handling of the pandemic through 2020 in the aspirations that were then given to the Biden presidency. And Gary, can I just add one thing to that? Because you could also say that the other really important date here is January the 5th, not January the 6th. That is the day on which the two Georgia Senate seats, which hadn't been expected a month earlier to uh, be won by the Democrats, were won and then created the conditions where at least it's possible, though, as we've discovered, incredibly hard, but possible to secure majorities in the Senate. I mean, is there a counterfactual here where you think, say, as people thought that one or maybe even both of those seats had remained Republican? And so it was understood by the Biden administration that the Senate was blocked for all effective purposes. And therefore, the legislation had to follow some other path, or there had to be some other approach, even rhetorical approach. What happened when the possibility of majorities in the Senate, bare majorities, 50-50 votes, and then a tie-breaking vote sort of reared its head, combined maybe with then what happened on January the 6th, it did lead to an, a kind of overreach, possibly even a kind of hubris. And actually, when I think about it, I feel Biden's presidency might be going better now if he hadn't or his party hadn't won those two Georgia seats. That is, there would have been both less expectations, but a different kind of politics and also less of a focus on the two Democratic senators who won't budge and a focus on Republicans instead. There is something to that. If Trump had behaved differently and he left Georgia politics alone, neither Democrat would have won in Georgia, I don't think. And the Democrats would have come into office with a minority in the Senate. And I'm sure that would have led to a different calculation on the part of Biden and his administration. So that clearly is is a very important element. And I think it's because that victory was so stunning and so unexpected Two Democratic senators from this state of Georgia, one of the hearts of the former Confederacy being elected in such an unexpected manner. Yes, I think this contributed to a sense of possibility that may not have been there before. I also agree with Helen in terms of mastering the coronavirus. It's like mastering the common cold. I used to get angry every year. Why would I get afflicted with five or six common colds in in a single season? Shouldn't one be enough? Can't I develop immunity to it? The coronavirus is related to that family of viruses, and it's always mutating. And I think everywhere in the world, people, uh, leaders are having trouble managing it. It's, It's universal from the United States to China to Europe to Africa to to South Asia. 
And I think the Biden administration thought the one thing they really had to do was roll out these miraculous vaccines and then everything would fall into place. And then they got hit with these two very impactful variants, which they were not prepared for. I don't know if any administration could have been prepared for. And one of the messages we have to take from this is that this coronavirus is unlike an economic depression. In other words, leaders and their administrations don't really know what to do in many situations and have to react to things for which they're not prepared. So I agree with that. But let me add one more thing to the mix here. I'm thinking about a transformational moment in, in American politics. I don't think Biden has read the situation entirely wrong. I think in some respects, the conditions are ripe for a transformation. I think in his own way, Trump is a transformational figure in American politics uh, on the right, creating the conditions for authoritarianism and perhaps an oligarchic republic in the United States. And I think this was also a, a moment where Biden saw the opportunity to move beyond the Clinton-Obama years, which I have characterized as being part of a neoliberal order concentrated to the virtues of globalization, free trade, free movement of people, free movement of capital, a whole set of policies organized around those principles. There was a sense, and there still is a sense in the Democratic Party, that that way of doing politics had not succeeded well enough. It created a lot of problems for the Democrats and that the time had arrived to strike out in a different direction. And that suggests that the reading of the possibilities of transformation were not simply rooted in unexpected developments with the election in Georgia and with the election of Biden, but it's based in a, a reading of underlying political structures giving way, creating possibilities for new kinds of politics that had not been there before or had not been there for a very long period of time. So Biden's dilemma is that he, on the one hand, discerned this as a moment of inflection of a possibility of fundamental change, but he was given such a weak hand that his ability to actually carry that through to conclusion was never very strong from the start. But let's not forget that the possibility of transformation still exists. And if transformation is to occur, I still rate the possibility of a transformation in an authoritarian direction to be more likely than one uh, in a progressive direction in terms of chances for success. But I don't think that Biden was wrong in reading the current moment in terms of understanding what the moment demanded. I think the moment does demand in the United States and elsewhere in the world, thinking in different terms about the possibilities of politics. So before we come on to the question of how bad this could get in conflict terms, I just want to ask both of you, and Gary, you mentioned this, Biden's had a bad week, and partly because of the response to his speech on voting rights. What you think the strategy was there? That is, what is he trying to achieve by moving to this issue. So he gave the the speech in Georgia. And this is partly marking the, the one year on from those Georgia Senate elections. And, and the background to this is in part, at least, that the attempt, as described by Biden, by Republican state electoral authorities to make Georgia-style turnarounds from Republican to Democratic election victories much harder to achieve. That's part of the context for this. But it was an extraordinary speech. And I, I didn't see it, but I read it. I read it just now, actually, the White House transcript. One of the odd things is the White House has put up a transcript of the speech, which has not been tidied up in the sense that some of the verbal infelicities are there now in the text. Words crossed out, the wrong word in place, the wrong word replaced by uh, 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 and then the right word. They didn't even bother to make it read better on the page. It's a passionate speech. It's an overblown speech. The rhetoric is bizarre, I think. I don't know what either of you think on this. What do you think, going into that, 
Biden's people thought was the strategic benefit? I'm not sure what the strategy was. One has to wonder about the strategy. Certainly, this is what I imagine wasn't on the minds of his inner circle. Uh, Biden had tacked uh, so hard to the center, to Joe Manchin, to get his social infrastructure bill passed, that he left to the side the issue that arguably is the most important to one of his most important constituencies, and that is African-American voters throughout the United States. It's important to keep in mind that African-American voters in South Carolina, I believe it was on February 29th or 28th, saved his run for the presidency in 2020. He was on his way to defeat and a massive turnout by them in South Carolina saved his presidency. And then a massive turnout orchestrated by African-Americans in Georgia gave him arguably the state of Georgia and helped him win the presidency and also gave him his majority in the Senate. So the debt to African-American voters is very deep. In many states, Republicans alarmed at the numbers of Democratic voters, many of them minority, who voted in 2020 are bent on making access to the polls more difficult. I think their purpose is to deny them access to the votes. And so after this great surge in 2020, an extraordinary moment of democratic mobilization, I, I mean democratic with a small d rather than a big d, to then be faced with a form of disenfranchisement that reminds African-Americans of their experience of Jim Crow and, and segregation was an awful and, and intolerable development. Biden hasn't touched it sooner because in order to act on voting rights in the Senate, he was going to have to get rid of the filibuster, uh, which requires super majorities for any bill to get to the Senate floor for a vote. And because this is such a storied part of the Senate tradition, he was not willing to do it. So he delayed and delayed, tacked toward the center to get his social infrastructure bill passed, ignoring his most important constituency. And they began to warn him that if he didn't do something soon, they were not going to do anything for his chances of keeping the House or Senate in the 2022 election. So I think they got scared. What I don't understand about this is the timing. Now, the anniversary drove part of it, the one-year anniversary of the great victory in Georgia. But to pivot in this way away from the social infrastructure bill one day and then two days later to go to the Capitol and allow himself to get humiliated by a senator from Arizona who two hours before he shows up to talk to senators, uh, she declares her opposition to letting any bill of this sort get to the Senate floor. For him to be blindsided like this seems to me an unforgivable political miscalculation. So I understand the forces that were acting on him. In other words, he had to do something to secure a vital part of his base, the African-American part of his base. But the timing and the follow-through was abysmal. And, and there's a general sense of that and a general incomprehension among a lot of commentators in American politics why this moment, why this strategy, and it, it's regarded in, as being uh, an, an incredibly clumsy move that has certainly hurt his reputation across all sectors of the political spectrum in the United States. In part, it's part of the same exhaustion of the transformational strategy that he began the, the presidency with, because it seemed to me that in substantive policy terms, the way in which those around him could have thought that there was that possibility of, of transformation was primarily through using the climate crisis as a driver of a massive economic 
response and using the need for energy revolution to drive rejuvenation of the American manufacturing industry. And I think that what was in principle astute about that, there was something that took from the Trump playbook, as well as from what the left of the Democratic Party wanted to do. And that was that idea that the American national economic renewal that had to run through manufacturing industry, and that that was a way then of, of basically finding common ground between the people who voted for Trump in 2016, who were disaffected with status quo politics, but disliked all the antagonism and incompetence that Trump brought to the presidency. So it was a, it could in principle have been a, like a big tent. If you look at and also some of his rhetoric about unity, I mean, Biden um, here immediately after the election and in the inauguration, it, it was about trying to find uh, a common ground of bringing in certain part of the, the Trump coalition, probably particularly those who until more recently had voted Democrat back into a, a bigger Unfold and all depended upon the American federal state being able to do more. But for the reasons that we've already talked about, that that hasn't worked. And I think then to move into a a rhetorical position where he ended up in that speech where he is so actually shrinking the potential coalition um, around him was a sort of mission of defeat. But I also think it's a point in which it's going to be quite difficult to recover from and going back trying to build a wider electoral coalition. And Gary, in that speech, just briefly on the question of the filibuster, which I know a lot of people are either baffled by or incredibly bored by, and it comes up again and again in the history of American politics. But Biden is a, you know, he's a Senate guy, right? That's where his heart is. That's his political life. And in some ways, he's a traditionalist. And in his speech, he said that the filibuster, he didn't say it had a noble history, but he said it used to once be a vehicle for achieving compromise. Um, It was a way of, I mean, it served a purpose. And now, more recently, though, I don't think he put a date on it, and he didn't name who he was blaming, but it was clear who he was blaming. It's only recently been weaponized, he said. Is that true? Is there a historical basis for thinking that the filibuster has gone wrong recently? I think that's too innocent a view of the filibuster. The uh, use of the filibuster in the past has often been associated with allowing minorities of Southern senators to block legislation having to do with racial equality. So I think this has been... I mean, it's always been weaponized in that sense. It's always been weaponized. If we can separate the, the filibuster itself from actual history, which one can't do for very long, but I do want to suggest that the idea of requiring supermajorities for fundamental questions of state and nation is not necessarily a bad idea. If Britain had had such a principle and set 60% as a base requirement for Brexit, there would be no Brexit. And that may not have been a bad idea in that situation. So I think it it has at times forced, compelled senators of the two parties to work across the aisle. And there are examples of bipartisanship of a significant sort, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, bills that may have occasioned a uh, tremendous discord so that one can find the filibuster working in a positive way. But that Senate is is gone. Uh, and uh, I think the the Senate that exists now and the Republican Party in that Senate is very little interested in working across the aisle. And I think th- their interest right now is very similar to their interest uh, with the Obama presidency, which is to stop every piece of legislation they can so as to render the democratic inhabitant 
of the Oval Office a failure. Um, uh, they stymied Obama in this way repeatedly. I think they're trying to do something similar with Biden. And that way, Helen, I'm not sure the possibility for a, a true um, coalition bringing uh, across party lines was a realistic option for Biden. I, think. I meant among voters. I didn't mean among, oh, in, among in voters, uh, p- perhaps. But the voters still have to deal with Republican leaders who are telling them that uh, what the Democrats are thinking of doing amounts to a form of socialism, which they can in no respect accept. Uh, so the we're, I think the, the Senate is in dramatically different territory. And I think Biden is a prisoner of his long senatorial experience and is unable to let go of a tradition of that Senate that he still has quite a lot of admiration for. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So we could now, but we won't, talk about Brexit and supermajorities. Instead, let's talk about something that, to me, has got astonishing amounts of coverage in the United States and, indeed, in Britain and elsewhere, too, in recent weeks, uh, there's a sort of vogue at the moment for addressing the question of whether the impasses in American politics, the conflict, the partisanship, but also the possibilities of violence, presage what is being called a civil war. And I mean, I've written about this a bit in the past. I've talked about it a bit on this podcast. I'm deeply skeptical, and I'm particularly skeptical of, of this language, of the term, but it's, you know, it's being taken very seriously. And of course, people do have a, a looming sense of dread, many people about 2022 and 2024, particularly the next presidential election, and the possibilities on both sides that the result will not be accepted by the losers. And I want to come on in a second to what we mean by that and how those scenarios might play out. But just on that question of civil war, Helen, why don't I start with you? So I'm deeply doubtful that it makes sense to talk about the kinds of conflicts that clearly are rife in American politics as steps on the road that leads to America's had a civil war. And so that term has to encompass the original civil war and the next thing in something that has a family resemblance and more. I can't see it. I can't see where you get to that that scale, that organization, that kind of conflict. Can you? Not really. I mean, I do think there's got to be some distinction drawn between kinds of civil war here. I think it is important in the context in which you're having this conversation to note that the idea that the civil war that the United States had was a civil war was only something that actually emerged at the beginning of the 20th century. And it gets to the heart of the question of of what we're talking about when we if, we if we were to say the United States was heading for a civil war, what would we mean? Because if we were to say it was heading to a civil war that was a version of the something like the civil war that happened um, between 1861 um, and 1865, we'd be saying that a group of states that were geographically next to each other wanted to, or not only wanted to, but did form a breakaway government. And then the 
federal government put up resistance, in the end successful resistance, violent resistance to that secession. And that seems to me to be, it seems to me sort of near incomprehensible that you could think that there was anything like that that was going to repeat itself. I mean, maybe that we could imagine some scenario in which one of the largest states, say like California, might unilaterally want to secede. I'm not saying that will, I'm just saying in, in, in terms of things that we could imagine as remotely plausible in the next, or that we could even conceive as happening conceive of of happening perhaps that 11 states or or something of that number would declare themselves to be an independent state and then fight a war to achieve that independence that seems to me to be that doesn't belong i think to the the world of 21st century america but the other kind of civil war would be one um like say the civil war in these islands in the in the 17th century where you have different factions trying to control power at the centre, and that somewhat oversimplifies what went on, but it will do for the distinction purposes. And so it's the contest of power within the existing state that becomes a matter of violence. And perhaps I think if you say that, well, perhaps it's not so impossible to imagine. I still don't think it's likely to happen, but I still think that it's a scenario in which you can say, okay, this is what that would mean in the 21st century America. But I think the version that happened, which is about a civil war, about secession made by a group of states wanting their independence. I, I just think that, that that's just not part of the American world today. I share your skepticism, although I think the threats of political violence in America and also to democracy are are real. I haven't read the book that started this conversation. It's by Barbara Walter. <laughs> the little book that started this big war, yeah. How a Civil War Starts and the publishing strategy was brilliant. It was time for publication like the day anniversary of the January 6th insurrection when everyone was beside themselves with this, with trauma about this, uh, this shattering event in the history of American politics, which I think it was. And so uh, it was a brilliant publishing strategy. I have not read the book, so I have to issue that caveat. But I think uh, analogies to the American Civil War have to be made with the utmost of care. 700,000 soldiers died in the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865. By comparison, 100,000 died in World War I, 350,000 died in World War II, 50,000 in Vietnam. It remains, of course, with a far smaller population, it remains the bloodiest, most awful conflict in terms of loss of life and bloodshed domestically in which the United States has ever been involved. Uh, And to suggest that America is going down that road again is is a suggestion that has to be made very, very carefully. And we also have to think harder about why conflict of that magnitude occurred. And it wasn't simply because the United States was divided into two tribes. There was an underlying conflict in political economy in the 19th century that does not exist now. There was a slave system of labor in the South and a free labor system in the North. And the feeling at the time, and I think the feeling was correct, that ultimately those two systems of labor, those two systems and the systems of political economy that grew from them were incompatible. There is nothing of the sort that exists today to drive America to that destination. As much as the South and North remain 
different in America culturally in the United States today. There's nothing resembling one political economy of the North and another political economy of, of the South. I would argue the United States has one political economy for the entire nation, and it emerged out of the reconstruction of America that came after the Civil War and when the free labor system won. That's not to deny the persistence of very severe racial discrimination, but there's no persistence of slavery in the United States. And this underlying conflict and conviction about the incompat incompatibility of these two very different systems of labor and economy is what stands at the heart of the American Civil War. It's hard for me to imagine a similar conflict over political economy driving a civil war today. Now, having said that, one has to recognize that the United States uh, is in danger of political violence. I also think it seems that Barbara Walter in her book def defines a threshold of civil war at a very low level. And in terms of hundreds or even a few thousand people being killed. The United States is a nation of 330 million people. To define a civil war at that very low level threshold, I think, is very problematic in terms of predicting another civil war. There is a lot of violence in American society. There's always been a lot of violence in American society, but there's been only one civil war. There is the danger, however, that political violence will spread. It has become legitimate in sectors of the American right now in ways that had not been before. I also worry about violence on the political left. And this has to do with the question that's coming, David, I guess, about losers' consent. It's important to note that the left over the course of the 20th century has pretty much renounced violence as a political tool. But this wasn't always the case. I think of the anarchists of the late 19th and early 20th century who tried to kill several American presidents and actually killed one, uh, William McKinley. I think about the Weathermen, the Beider-Meinhof gang, the PLO of the 1960s and 70s. There was a time when violence was considered a legitimate tool on the left. And then it was expunged from the left, which I consider to be a major achievement. But I think if political violence on the right goes unchecked, and if there's a feeling that the 2024 election has been stolen, I do fear that political violence will resurge on the left as well. And we saw glimpses of this in the protests in Portland, Oregon, over George Floyd's murder uh, in the summer and fall of 2020. And that is a, an indication of something that might spread quite radically uh, in the years to come if the United States does not find a way to contain the political violence that in some places verges on being out of control. I think, though, Gary, that you could make this distinction, which was in, in a way implicit in the previous one that I made, between a civil war um, where you would expect the political economy of it to be consequential, and that would be a civil war about secession, uh, and a civil war where you wouldn't expect that to be the case. And I would say that a good example of that would be the the civil war in these islands, I really don't want to call it the uh, English civil war, which you might argue, you know, had it at its heart a set of constitutional questions about who had the authority to do what, not just in relation to the crown and parliament, but in relation to the different constituent parts of the union, and obviously particularly the relationship between England and, and England and um, 
Scotland. And that seems to me, I, I, I don't want to t- take this argument to mean that you know, the United States is on the path to civil war because I don't believe that. But I, I think that there can be different kinds of conflicts at work in civil wars where what's at issue is, is who has got power at the centre. Whilst I think we're all in agreement that the American civil war that happened is not going to repeat itself, I think that the, the legacy of it is part of the reason why some of the conflicts in American politics are described in the in the language in which they are and invoke the emotion in which they are. I think T.S. Eliot said once that, you know, like, serious civil wars never come to an end. Uh, and I think that that's true about the American civil war. It's a good example of it. Perhaps it's even perhaps the most important example of it. And we could see that in the way in which... Um, Confederate symbols were used in the January the 6th insurrection. So the very fact that the United States has had a civil war of a very particular kind, a secessionist kind, still is, and the way in which the relationship of that to slavery and to to race is still part of American politics today, and that isn't going to go away. It seems to me we're probably talking about two things here, one of which is political violence, and the other of which is basically of the rules of the game, that people stop being willing to play the game of legitimate democratic electoral politics, summarised often now by this phrase that the absence of losers consent, that the people who are on the losing side in elections no longer accept that the elections were conducted legitimately. And if you separate those two things out, as you said, Gary, I'm not, I don't want to call it low-level violence in the sense that it's insignificant violence, but low-level violence in the sense of pockets of political violence is sort of woven through the history of the American Republic. And relatively speaking, this is still a nonviolent phase, relative even to the 20th century, never mind to the 19th century, just in terms of basic measures of violence, assassination, acts of terrorism, and so on. Of course, there are some, and it may be growing in some respect, but compared to the 1970s or 60s, the 1930s or 20s, even the 1950s, a sort of peaceful era, this is a nonviolent period. But there is violence there and the potential for more violence. But also, even on that question of losers' consent, there's sometimes a sort of feeling that this is a very recent phenomenon. Trump's questioning of Biden's victory is this kind of massive break with the recent past that he did things and said things, certainly that no president has done, but also that sort of rhetorically had been off the table. But you could argue that all of recent American presidents have had a problem with loser's consent. Bill Clinton did. I mean, lots of people didn't accept the legitimacy of his election. George W. Bush did because he, in some senses, didn't win his election. Uh, Barack Obama did. Donald Trump himself did. And Biden did. And in a sense, the American Republic has lived with that for quite a long time. And it depends what we mean by rejecting the result of an election, because there's a there's a big spectrum here between people saying they think the election is illegitimate and something that has definitely changed in the last 10, 15 years is the opportunity to say that and to be heard saying it online, on social media, to find other people who will agree with you is massively enhanced. So if you feel that an election result is illegitimate, you can now say it in ways you couldn't say before and possibly even be heard. So there's a lot more saying it. But that's at one end of a spectrum that at the very other end of this spectrum leads to organized mass armed resistance to the result. And it seems to me that America has lived now for quite a long time with quite a lot of people saying it without it moving that far along the spectrum. But the fear must be, and I guess this is where the real fear is, that these two stories might come together 
2024, the possibility of familiar levels of violence coupled with growing expressions of rejection of election results. That's the thing that could produce potentially a new and unprecedentedly dangerous, that is relatively speaking in the recent past, unprecedentedly dangerous situation. But it's those two things. They're not the same. And treated separately, America has lived with both. I think that's well said. The one piece I would add to that is that America's record of ensuring losers' consent has been pretty remarkable over the course of its history in that uh, even when the losers had questions about the legitimacy of the winner, they agreed to abide by the result. And the United States has never missed an election across its entire history, nor has someone who has been installed in office been removed from office by force. There's been no successful coup. Uh, the only exception to that brings us back to the Civil War again, when the when the Southern states seceded because they could not abide Lincoln's election in 1860. It's useful, I think, to draw a contrast between what's going on today and, and 2000, uh, when Al Gore ran against George W. Bush. If the votes had been fairly counted, there's a good chance that Gore would have been installed as the president of the United States rather than Bush. He knew this. Democrats knew this. Many Democrats regarded Bush as an illegitimate president, but they also accepted the result and agreed to save save their ammo to fight another day, uh, which they did in 2004 and winning in 2008 and, and 2012. Gore's magnanimous decision to accept Bush's victory under very suspect circumstances, and in fact, one can make an argument that the election was stolen from him, is of a keeping with a very powerful tradition in American politics. And what makes this moment so terrifying to Americans is that Trump has broken with that tradition. He is the first loser in a presidential contest not to accept the verdict of the voters, the verdict of the Electoral College, and he will go to his deathbed insisting that he won the election, that a big lie has been foisted on America. There has been no figure in American history who has taken this step. Uh, and the support for him within the Republican Party is still very, very strong. And this issue may well be fought out again in 2024. And if it is, it is going to compel the United States to enter territory where it has not been before. And that could be a scenario where political violence at a low level begin to cascade into something more major. And I think if the Democrats feel that 2024 has been stolen from them, or if the Republicans lose and they refuse to accept defeat, the U.S. may be confronted with an intensification of a constitutional crisis, which in some respects has already begun. We've got to sort of recognize two different things, or maybe even more than two, but I'll start with two. What Trump did, which is in obvious contrast to um, the response of Gore in 2000 or Nixon in 1960. So in terms of... Or one should say to Hillary Clinton in 2016. And then the, the, the ways in which we might think that the structural pressures on losers' consent have been growing. And I think you could probably put this back in terms of the 
politics around it. I don't think the loser's consent issue is there itself in the 1970s. What you get with Nixon presidency, obviously, is the beginning of the politics of impeachment. And that is where I think that it's a little bit different uh, in countries that allow for the impeachment of, in this case, the the president. And when you have a succession of attempts, all ultimately failed, though obviously the Nixon one would have succeeded if he hadn't resigned, where the opposition effectively has other ways of pursuing the removal of somebody from office. And now sometimes that can be because obviously they've done things that might merit impeachment, but I don't think that anybody else is going to argue that the case for impeachment is often viewed dispassionately, shall we say, by those who want to push it. So in this respect, that's where I would say that Obama is a complete respite from this dynamics because there's never any talk about uh, impeaching Obama. There was talk about trying to impeach um, George Bush Jr. after the 2006 midterm elections. The other part where, where the United States has a particular issue with loses consent is the relationship between the federal parts of the Constitution and the Democrat parts of the Constitution. Because another scenario for 2024 would not be the one that Gary's just described, which is obviously is one scenario, but another one would be another election in which a Republican candidate um, won the Electoral College without winning the popular vote. From 2000 onwards, it would be the case under that scenario that in 2004 only had a Republican won while winning the popular vote. I think that is does start to put a quite a lot of strain on loser's consent. This is not territory that the United States has been in before. Obviously, there have been elections in which there's been a divergence between the Electoral College and the the popular vote, but not a succession of them that are to the advantage of of one party. And so I think that although I agree with you, David, that we could say that this has been building pressure that hasn't actually gone anywhere consequential um, yet, I still think that the pressures are still accumulating and they're still accumulating in a potentially dangerous direction. And so finally, a last question for both of you, given I assume we all agree that there's nothing inevitable here, but it's quite easy with 2024. And part of the problem is that one can imagine it happening both ways. One can imagine each side refusing to accept the result for different reasons if the other side wins. What are the possible scenarios between now and then that might overcome that or bridge it i mean it can't be inevitable it can't be inevitable that this is just going to keep getting worse and worse it might keep getting worse and worse and if it does then at some point the republic will break down in whatever form that takes but there must also be possibilities that things happen or politics shifts in such a way that it's possible to overcome these things and elections start to feel a little bit more like national events in which there'll always be plenty of people on both sides who hate everything about what happens but that there is a consensus somewhere in the middle that it's better to focus on what unites than on what divides. That must at least be a possibility, but it's quite hard to think of what, I mean, we're not there now and something would have to change for that to be possible. Is it economic conditions? Would a sustained period of economic growth or maybe even more equitable economic growth? Is it the old fashioned way that countries get united, which is a war? There must be a possibility of international conflict between now and 2024. And and we don't know how the George W. Bush presidency would have played out absent 9-11. It made all the difference in the world in many respects. Can you think of the things that you instinctively feel might overcome this, what feels at the moment like sense of inexorability that 2024 is going to be a nightmare? I think a robust period of economic growth and one that's fairly distributed over the entire population would make a difference. I think a genuine end to the pandemic, uh, Helen's earliest point 
uh, in our hour today um, is still with me, the way in which the pandemic is distorting politics really every day of our lives. If we can glimpse a post-pandemic world, um, I think that would relieve some of the pressure on the political system and allow it to be managed more effectively by the people who have power. I also think that there's uh, under the radar in the United States right now, the investigation being conducted by Merrick Garland, who is a U.S. Attorney General, into the January 6th insurrection. He issued his first charges of sedition last week in a very long and intensive investigation against members of the Oath Keepers, one of the vigilante groups that assaulted the Capitol on January 6th. Um, he is undertaking a very systematic campaign. It's been very quiet until now. He knows how to do this. He was the man in charge of the Oklahoma City bombing investigation in the 1990s. A couple of the Oath Keepers have flipped, which means they will become informants and perhaps implicate some higher ups. And the a positive development in the last two weeks is I've noticed some space between what we might call an established Republican leadership and the forces of Trump. A greater willingness to say that he lost uh, in uh, 2020, a declaration of a need to move forward and not backwards, a willingness to support some candidates who are, are being denounced by Trump. There are some early indications that Liz Cheney, the congresswoman from Wyoming, will not be the only person willing to speak out about what really happened on January 6th. So the larger question here is, will the Republican Party in the next two years be willing at some point to move out of the shadow of Trump, to move out of the shadow of right-wing conspiracy and become what it has been in the past, which is a party with an important and eminently respectable history. It is a party of emancipation in the Civil War, the, the party that drove the North to victory over the South that, and that ended slavery. Is there a possibility that this party will move away from the direction in which it's been moving in the last 10 or 15 years in terms of what has produced Trump and so that a healthier rivalry between the Democratic and Republican parties can resume. I have some hope there. Uh, in American politics, the time between now and 2024 is a very long period of time. Uh, and uh, even though the evidence is slender, I am hoping that there will be some effort with the passage of time in the Republican Party to put some distance between themselves uh, and Trump. Now. My final comment about that uh, refers to something that Helen said about structural elements of American politics, which currently the Republican Party is a minority party, has a lot of difficulty winning general elections. It is, seems content to lose in the general election the popular vote, win in the Electoral College, control the Senate, and rule America in that way. Would it be willing to once again take on the challenge of reaching for the majority? And I think if the Republican Party is to recover if the two-party competition in the United States is to resume in a healthier manner, then both parties are going to have to seek majorities. Because if one party wins consistently while losing a majority of Americans, this will come to the point where those who vote Democratic and who are in the, for the Democratic Party and who are in the majority will themselves no longer give their consent to elections in the United States. And if the United States reaches that point, then America will be at the point where its democracy will be at risk and perhaps lost. I'm skeptical about the possibility of some kind of like restoration where the 
old two-party system is concerned. I mean, I think the fact that Trump was able to hijack the Republican Party effectively as he did spending no money and using his, or scarcely any money, and using his Twitter account during the 2016 primaries shows how exposed the old American Party system was or how vulnerable it was. And the only you know, way out, as in different ways you both started by suggesting, is, is economic, a big enough national economic project that can appeal to a broad base of Americans. And I think the corollary of that is probably has to be uh, an attempt on all sides to take some of the cultural issues out of democratic politics. That may be naive, it might not be possible, but they are clearly paying a significant part in the polarisation that's taken place and the, some of the difficulties, not all of the difficulties, I think, some of the difficulties around losers' consent. Obviously, the difficulty, how that national economic project, what it will be, how it comes about, how it occurs in a world of serious geopolitical tension and how it occurs at a time when an effective energy revolution is underway. These are all like really difficult questions. But I think in a way, that was the place where the Biden administration started. And that's a paradox, I think, about its beginnings. On the one hand, it was, as you said, David, there was a hubris right at the beginning of the the Biden presidency. But there was also something that was in the right place, which was the only way forward for the American Republic. I noticed neither of you went with the possibility, not of civil war, but of the other more familiar kinds of war. I think that's something we're going to have to come back to. Gary Gerstle has a book coming out quite soon, not till April, but on the 5th of April, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era is going to be published. And it's about many of the things that we were talking about there. Helen Thompson also has a book coming out even sooner, and we are going to be discussing it on Talking Politics. Before that, though, we have John Norton reflecting on what technology has done to politics. And we're going to be talking to Shashank Joshi from The Economist about Putin, Ukraine and the risks of war. Do join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.